What is up, you fellow Auxorians? Is that a word? I don't know. It is now. I'm Zach, your host of the Auxoro podcast, The Voice of Music, where we dive deep and deconstruct the stories of music artists, industry pros, and others to answer the question, what makes us human? This week's episode is brought to you by The Ox. Now, what is The Ox? The Ox is a compact weekly newsletter bringing you the five coolest things that we come across each week. These little nuggets of knowledge, nuggets of coolness, whatever you want to call them, can range anything from art and life hacks to articles and workout tips. For example, in recent newsletters, we've highlighted our favorite yoga instructors on YouTube, meditation tips, artists of the week, what we're currently reading, and more. So every week we discover some information or tools that enhance our lifestyle and we would love nothing more than to share these things with all of you. Nothing is better than cool shit, especially cool shit that's free, which this newsletter will always be. So if you're ready to take your cool to the next level, at least our version of cool, you can subscribe to the newsletter with the link in the description of this podcast or visit auxoro.com slash the aux. That's A-U-X. This week, we sat down with Kevin Garrett, a singer-songwriter from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He is a Grammy Award-nominated artist, a multi-instrumentalist, and someone who makes some of the most intimate, powerful sounds that I've ever heard. He's also a funny guy, even though he'll probably tell you that he's not. And he made an appearance on the comedy production series Funny or Die back in 2017. He just dropped an album called Hoax, which stands for Hell of a Heartbreak. I listened to it straight through while I was walking to and from Trader Joe's a couple weeks ago. I went to Trader Joe's for some eggs and chicken and ended up leaving with six bottles of Merlot and 10 tissue boxes. That's the power of Kevin Garrett. I was probably still a couple bottles short. In this conversation, we spoke about Kevin's early memories of Pittsburgh, his approach to songwriting, meeting and working with Beyonce, the inspirations behind Hoax, and more. Recently, I was lucky enough to be invited to watch Kevin perform a few songs off of Hoax at Rockwood Music Hall in NYC. In his own words during the performance, Kevin said, There will be no hits tonight, only new stuff. Well, I think time will definitely bring multiple hits out of this album, and I'm truly grateful for the sounds that he's brought into this world. So without further ado, here is our deep and wide-ranging conversation with Kevin Garrett. This whole thing turned around And I wanna throw us against the wall I won't take a fall if I act like it don't bother me at all I think a good place to start would be the Pittsburgh Penguins. Okay. And so just a little background. My friend invited me to the game tonight at Madison Square Garden. Oh, yeah. And yeah, so this past weekend, he was like, hey, I have an extra ticket for work. Do you want to come? But you have to show up about an hour before. They're doing like something where they're filming a promo video. So they're giving people money for concessions. And the only stipulation is that they have to film you doing stuff before the game. So it's kind of weird, but I was like, fuck it. I'll, I'll just, I'll do that for free tickets. But I know that you are a Pittsburgh Penguins fan, a Pittsburgh sports fan in general. So I was wondering, what 
what do you think of the Penguins this season? Have you been able to follow them? I know you're you're super busy. Yeah, you've been able to keep up. I'm trying to. When I'm home, I I can watch some games, but I haven't been to many games this season. They don't resemble the team that went back to back, but I think there's been some lingering injuries on some players that hockey is is very um, vague about disclosing their injuries. So you never really know. It's either upper or lower body and day to day or month to month. So they don't go into detail too much. They'll just say, no, this guy's upper body injury or something. Unless there's like a grudge they want to exact on another team or something. Like he, he has a concussion. The hit was illegal. Like they'll, they'll say that. Most teams will say that. But usually it's kind of like this level of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Just saying, yeah, he's day to day. I feel like that could be a pride thing though in hockey. I don't know how the injury process or the injury reporting process goes about, but I know that hockey players seem like they play injured more than any other oh, yeah. sport. So maybe some of that comes from the want to just not seem as injured as they really are yeah. or like kind of minimize it. I mean, when fighting is a, a statistic in the sport, yeah. there's definitely a lot of tough guys, but um, that's why I'm here. It's okay to be sad. Yeah, exactly. You need to give the pep talk in the the locker room before the games, just like if guys are feeling too aggressive. Like, Can you imagine if I walked into like a playoff hockey locker room right before and I was like, guys, some of you are going through something that you don't want to talk about. So, And it's manifesting out on the ice and you need to start talking about it. Well, I'm here for that. I was reading about the Penguins a little bit and Crosby specifically because I grew up a baseball fan. I played baseball all through college and I haven't really given hockey the attention that it deserves because I think it's a fascinating sport and how high paced it is and how close quarters you have to play. So I'm technically I'm an Islanders fan and I know they're doing really well right now, but I can't really call myself an Islanders fan because I haven't been following them. But uh, Crosby, from the periphery of hockey fandom, I've heard that Crosby can be soft. And when I looked into it, it, it seems like most hockey players in the league think that he's one of the best players in the league. I think 48% of them in a recent survey, they talked to 200 players and 48% said that Crosby's one of the toughest players in the league and he's the best player in the league. So it's kind of crazy how the perception of Crosby has, is that he's soft. I don't know, it didn't, didn't really make sense to me. This is a type of thing where there's, it's a twofold answer. So the NHL favors its superstars like any other league. Of which is my opinion, at least they won't say that, but they same in baseball. You know, too. it's all about yeah. ratings. Like they they get TV broadcasts for these for these games, and so they want people watching. And if if Sidney Crosby or if before he went to the Leafs, if John Tavares or or uh, Connor McDavid, if they're injured, then or Ovechkin, if he's injured, they're not gonna watch the game as much. Mm-hmm. Like you have your homers that'll watch every game if it's on TV, but. You know, national fans want to see those players play, especially in towns that don't have hockey teams. And then the other part about it is, if Crosby was on your team, you would think he's the best thing in the world. You would love him. Yeah. It's the same way when we traded away uh, an enforcer a couple years ago, and then, or last year, and then he went to the Vegas Golden Knights, and they went on their cup run. And it wasn't so much like, oh, I hate that guy, but it's like, I know why everybody hated hated him when he was on our team because he is doing the exact same thing to us whenever we play him. So yeah, it's all it's all perspective. I feel like in hockey too, one player can 
and and also in basketball, one player can influence the game much more than they can in baseball or football when there's more people on the field. So if, if someone like Crosby is gone, then a fan has much more reason not to watch the game. So going off of the the Penguins' memories of, of Pittsburgh sports, how did Kevin Garrett, the kid, grow up in Pittsburgh? What was that like? I wasn't allowed to play hockey when I was younger. Blades and ice and my parents didn't want me to die. So I've never been good with my fists either. Can't fight anybody. But uh, I played baseball growing up and I, and I played lacrosse, actually. It was as close as I could get to ice hockey. Yeah, lacrosse is huge here, especially in Long Island. Yeah, yeah. But um, no, I grew up in part of the city called Point Breeze in Pittsburgh. Then my uh, family moved us out to the suburbs. And it was kind of nice. It was in the woods. And I started writing when I was um, 13 or 14 when I finally um, got let down enough to start talking about it or start yeah. thinking about it more. And then... Uh, what do you mean let down enough? Like, to talk about you know, it? girls wouldn't want to hang out afterwards. So I would write like a cheesy song about, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't go hang out with my friends because my dad or my mom were like, no, you're staying inside. And so I was like, oh, I hate you guys. And write a song about that. Yeah. And then when I started to be able to drive myself and somebody else to like the movie theater... And things started getting real hot and heavy. The first movie theater experiences. A lot of OTPHJs. Then there were, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> Not to get too uh, too graphic. That's why I used the abbreviation. Yeah, no, yeah. You can look that up on uh, Urban Dictionary there. <laughs> wow, you had cooler dates than me. It happened once and it was really awkward. So, and it doesn't really feel that good. I was, I think I was wearing jeans. So it's like, I would have rather just not. Anyway. Yeah. So not to distract. <laughs> Yeah, once I started, you know, growing up before college, like going through high school, that's when you get the real feelings, I think. You start getting emotional more, especially if you are dating someone or or whatever, if they don't say yes to going to the dance. And then I moved to New York for college. And um, with the exception of like a few songs I was writing when I was a teenager, I didn't really start appreciating what I was writing or like really focusing on the songwriting portion of it more mm-hmm. than the music portion of it until I, I got to New York and kind of got my ass kicked by um, some of my favorite writers and musicians uh, in the city. I played my first show at a place called Rockwood Music Hall. It was on a Sunday afternoon at 3 p.m. Nobody came except I, for... I was reading about that. There yeah. were a couple of police officers. Yeah, there were two cops who um, who thought they were, I think, getting like coffee or something. And then I... They, they looked like they were walking out. And I was like, wait, just stay for like <laughs> two songs. And then they stayed the whole time. Uh, so I guess they weren't on a shift that day or that part of the Or afternoon. they were so captivated by the music that they rerouted the call that they were on. This crime was running rampant outside Rock yeah. Music Hall, but inside it was a safe space. Then they asked me back. The owner liked me enough and I kept going back like once a month or more. And, and he put me on some really cool opening slots and... I think I was a freshman or sophomore when I started playing regularly there and um, put a band together. We put a record out. It was more like folk rock and did a little touring, but it was kind of evident by the end of college that um, everybody wanted to go their separate ways. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of already writing stuff from a different perspective, a different direction that made more sense for something new. And um, that band, okay, I, I could talk about it for a while. So That's okay. It's the beauty of a long format interview. But I was going to say, what uh, 
what did you mean by getting your ass kicked by other songwriters and musicians? You mean in songwriting sessions or in, not in, sessions? In just way? like going to see them play and just like, yo, this is so much better than anything. Like, cause before going to New York, like my like social media wasn't really a thing. I guess MySpace existed back in two thousand eight or two thousand nine. Facebook was still like new where I was from. Matt was on the the earlier versions of Facebook because he went to college in Boston. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. So he knows all about that. I didn't have a MySpace page, but I uh, I did have Facebook. I do still have Facebook, but back in the early days. Yeah, it was the type of thing where I was just, I, I had songs like demoed, but I didn't know the first thing about putting music out. And that was when like, if you could get your record on iTunes, I was like, I made it. And so I put it uh, like, I went through like an independent thing on and just uploaded some songs and it got on iTunes and uh, I thought it was the coolest thing ever, but they weren't good songs. And then I, and I got to New York and, and started listening to these writers and these, these, so, these singers and these musicians who were either going to New York at the same time as me for the same reasons or already there and already kind of found their space. And it was just inspiring. And not just from a creative point of view, but from like a, entrepreneurial point of view mm-hmm. like their hustle is infectious and and new york itself it has that effect on on people and so i would hang around rockwood all the time i would was, until i was old enough to drink they had to hide me in the back room sometimes just be like come out when you sing and then and then go back into the back room but uh no yeah definitely know what you mean when you say this part of the city or this area has more of a hustle vibe i'm from Long Island and lived in Plainview my whole life, which is about 45 minutes east of here. And it's so slow. Like you, you would just look at some of the people and conversations they have. And a lot of people, I don't know, I feel like life gets so monotonous that people have to figure out things to talk about. Like me and my, uh, me and my brother were talking about overhearing old ladies like bitching in line at delis or something about how the tuna is not as good this week or like the egg salad sucks or shit like that. And like, you know, a place is slow and that's the focal point of conversation. Then once I moved into Brooklyn and started hanging around my friends that were working in the city, there's just so much more of a, a dedication and a drive to not just make something of yourself, but to kind of just connect with people. Like there's People are, I feel like there's definitely a sense of uh, introversion. There's a lot of people in New York City, obviously, but it seems like a lot of people keep to themselves. But when people do connect, it seems like that drive to connect with people is a lot greater. I think it's because a lot of people come here. You know, there's, you have your locals, but there's a lot of people who come to New York or go to mm-hmm. LA or, or, you know, bigger cities for the same reasons. And so... Especially if you end up at a at a place like Rockwood, where you're seeing music by your peers and these same types of people that that are doing the same thing that you're doing, you're in the same headspace to to be motivated. And most of the time, it's it's constantly just thinking about the next day because you already like have what you're doing figured out. Like that show is before you even get on stage, like it's dialed in. I mean, that's great that it was a motivating force for you to be surrounded by that talent. Cause I feel like a lot of people, if they see someone that does something better than them, I think a lot of people don't have the mindset where they want to be inspired. I think 
a lot of times that turns into resentment or jealousy or like almost turn turn them off in the sense of like, okay, that person's born with it. I can't work to get to that point. That happens all the time. Like I, I struggle with that all the time because you you know how good you are. And then um, you see other people's moments sort of happen and, and things and, and it's kind of like, well, what's up? And then on top of that, you just have just crippling anxiety in general. You're insecure about everything. And so that, that exists. But I think the mentality that I've adopted was just to keep trying to be myself. That's the only yeah. way anyone can be unique. I felt sort of similarly in baseball a little bit when I was surrounded by my own peers when I was growing up in you know, middle school, high school. And then all of a sudden I went to college and started traveling around the country. And I'm just like, fuck, I'm not that good. Like you see all these kids and you're just exposed to so much more talent. And it just, it, at first to me, I was like, oh, okay, like I suck. But then after that, it, it was, it motivated me to want to get better. So I definitely get that aspect of having that inner monologue with yourself where you're trying to battle the line of, am I good enough? Can I be good enough? And what do I have to do to be good enough or as good as or better than who I'm surrounded by and just completely turning off and saying like, all right, it's not worth trying to do that. Yeah. I think the motivation it's created in, in if you're passionate about what you're pursuing, because there's plenty of things that I've, I've done where I've seen people be leaps and bounds more talented or, or just further along. And, and I get down immediately about it, but I get over it because it's not like when I was playing lacrosse, especially when I started playing for NYU club, like it, like it was like it mattered, you know, like that was something that was important. It's still, it's still important though. Like it is, it is, but like there were kids that were there that were like so much better. And I was just like, I'm here for music. Like I'm here for music school. Yeah. When I would see like musicians who are like so much better, it was like, okay, well, what can I, what can I take? What notes can I take off of watching you sing that I can, influence into my into my own sort of creative process and how how can that make me better i never had that kind of perspective with anything else so i think that's why it's motivating is because i want to keep creating like it's something that i want to do look like i love sports but you know i wasn't ever like the focus and there was a week in high school where i wanted to be a doctor because i got a good grade on an anatomy test and then you're like fuck yeah let's go Start looking into pre-med programs. Yeah. And then I, but then I went home and played guitar and I was like, no, I'm over it. I think it's just based off of like what your gut tells you and, and like what, what you're truly passionate about. And some people have a hard time figuring that out. So I feel lucky that, that I was able to stumble upon mine pretty early. Was there a, a specific moment where you felt comfortable to start releasing songs under Kevin Garrett, because I know you said for a long time you were writing things down and making music and not releasing it. Was there a certain song or a, a collection of work where you listened back to it and just felt like, okay, like it's time to start putting shit out? When I put Coloring out in 2014, there wasn't, there wasn't a time frame around it. I wasn't planning to put it out on November 11th, 2014. A lot of the stuff that I released has been released because of touring opportunities. I was on tour with James Vincent McMorrow for a week or two before Coloring came out. And um, I would play even songs that are on the new album, just solo around the States and Canada. And um, 
people would ask, where can I find it? And I was like, it's not out. Sorry. So then book coloring out as soon as I got it mixed and mastered. And it was kind of like, all right, here we go. And then James asked me out on some more dates, put more, put another song out around those dates. And then the next round of dates, I had the EP out. And then that's when things started really clicking with like playlisting and Spotify and stuff. And got really lucky with some of those kind of placements. And, and, um, when I started touring with James from like 2014 until I would say fall of 2017, I was kind of on the road mm-hmm. doing things. So you started that first tour with James without any music out? Yeah. I screen printed some t-shirts with my face on it. That's pretty crazy. It may be a common thing, but I feel like now, especially with the availability of streaming services, most people have music out before they go on tour. Yeah. That's usually how it goes, I think. The reason I got asked to go on the tour was because uh, my old band in college had opened for James, like in 2012. And so his agent sent an email. I don't know how they got in touch with me, to be honest, unless James was like, find this guy or find this band. And I told James, well, the band's dead, so here's a demo for coloring. And uh, he was like, yeah, let's do it. And we knew each other, but we weren't super friendly back then. And since, since that first tour, he's really taken me under his wing one of the first people to kind of give me a shot and which is kind of like really nice for for him because he could have picked anybody that that had songs out to like help with tickets and and things and he didn't need help with tickets they all the dates were sold out anyway so maybe that's why i lucked into it but and you had the t-shirts ready to go yeah i rushed the t-shirts after i confirmed the tour and i remember some late nights like pressing paint onto a shirt i was reading that you was it by yourself or you had a couple other people with you at first uh for for the first for the first um few tours i was just, it was just me and a toyota highlander and you were selling your own merch you were meeting meeting greeting people and manning the table by yourself it's pretty that's pretty involved and it seems like you could almost be doing more administrative duties than focusing on the actual music at that point? How did you kind of balance that? I didn't. I, I mean, most of the time when, when I would get to the hotel, wherever I was staying, that would be kind of the downtime to pull out a guitar and, and write. But but more often than not, I was wiped. So I'd like pass out and then get up early and keep driving because um, there's some long drives on those tours, like 18 hour drives on on off days to get to the next city. And there was one tour in Canada where I went from Edmonton, well, Calgary and Edmonton um, over to Vancouver, which is like six, 16 hours. All the way west, yeah. Right? It's like 16 hours, I think, through the Canadian Rockies in the dead of winter. It was so cold when I got into Canada for that tour. It was kind of when um, Celsius and Fahrenheit are the same number. Like there's yeah, a point when, on it, the when scale it gets where it, negative it enough, out. they kind of coincide. It was negative 40, I think. And I was That's confused because nuts. my phone still said Fahrenheit, but the radio kept saying Celsius and it was the same thing. And I was like, something's wrong, but it was very cold. But everybody that's like local. Was your heater working? There was one night um, where I had to, I, I started like dozing off. So I, I pulled over to like a Motel 6 or something and everybody's car was plugged in. Like everybody had a heater on their engine. And I was like, I'm from America. I don't know what this is. <laughs> and then. And the guy at the desk was like, your car is going to not start tomorrow. And I said, oh, okay. So I basically slept for like two hours, got up and kept driving because I didn't want to... So you had to keep driving to keep it warm. 
Basically. Yeah, I needed to sell those shirts. Like I need, I couldn't yeah. miss a show. You can't let those face shirts go to waste. Yeah. I was reading that you worked on Pray You Catch Me with Beyonce and you wrote Pray You Catch Me. And I've kind of heard a little bit of the story behind that. But I was wondering, how do you maintain, how do you have the the courage to maintain your own style of songwriting, kind of like your own songwriting posture when you're writing for someone like Beyonce. Because I feel like a lot of people might be intimidated by writing something for someone that is as well known as her and maybe alter their true instincts or something to kind of fit into something. How did, how did you stay strong, I guess, in your, in your songwriting process? Without going too far into detail, it was kind of a right place, right time situation for me where I was on the road and um, I got a call saying she wanted to cut the song and um, I had the demo and I sent the stems off and she 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 cut it. I didn't hear it until um, like a, a week before it came out pretty much but I kind of backed my way into, into producing the song because some stuff from the from the demo made it on and so I feel like um, that song was was very much me in the first place, the intention wasn't necessarily for her. So you weren't writing it knowing that it, it was no. going to... Okay. I, I mean, I wrote it in I wrote it in 2013, and then I got a call about it a year after that. And then it came out two years after that. And then, you know, the, the, collab, the collaborative aspect of it was, you know, once everything was sort of handed off. But that, yeah, that song was, was always very personal. And um, the thing that made me the happiest about it was that um, she sang it um, understated. She sang it really with some nuance and didn't go full Beyonce on it, which she could have done and it probably still would have been great. Definitely yeah. would have still been great, but I think... But yeah, I know what you mean. She, it was really she didn't artistic. flex the pipes as yeah, hard as she yeah. usually does. Yeah. And so I've heard you talk about this before, but basically you were introduced to Beyonce at a, a party and she said something along the lines of hey kevin you're super talented i was introduced to her via an anr and uh he said he called her bb they're close i guess when they're you're close on, they're you on can, that bb level yeah i guess when you're close you can add the second b yeah and he called her bb and said this is the um it's the kid who wrote that song and it was like a switch was flipped and she like looks at me and she goes kevin so nice to find me too you're really talented. Like staring intently, just like... Like, no, like a heavenly smile. And like, she she reached her hand out and I shook her hand and I started melting halfway because it was Beyonce's hand. And also because I was standing under like a heat lamp. It was an indoor-outdoor bar in, in December. So emotionally and physically melting at the same time. Yeah, different states of melting. But yeah, she said, so nice to finally meet you. Thank you for the song. Love the song. Can't wait to let you hear it. You're super talented. And I said, you as well to Beyonce Knowles Carter. Thank you for laying the stage for what happened. And I know that you have said that that's not the ideal response, but I think that it is. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you what my, my thoughts on it. So she's Beyonce. She's, she's a superstar. She's probably used to people thinking that She's super talented. She's she's always good all the time. I don't think she has a lot of people besides maybe a 
close group of friends, but maybe not even them. I don't know, BB. You'll you'll have to let us know. But I don't think she has that many people saying like, hey, like just to let you know, like you're super talented. Like if you ever forget that. Like so from your perspective or from her perspective, I think she may have truly appreciated that. Like, wow, thank you. Like no one's actually told me that in a while. And thank you for reminding me because everyone goes through the same shit. Even Beyonce probably has points where her self-confidence wavers, even though it's hard to believe. It's a really optimistic point of view. I'll, I'll give you that. It's nice to know that somebody even that high up is a music fan, to be honest. Like, it feels like with with social media, especially, you get a lot of like new artists that probably aren't even in it for the music, but that's their way in. They just want to be like hyper famous. Mm-hmm. And um, with her, I mean, obviously she was around before all of that, and now she's royalty. And you know, to even know my name, every time I've met her too, to remember like one of the writers on her record is cool. It's really cool. I wrote out a few responses that could have been worse just so you can see how good your response was so she said hey kevin you're super talented and you said you said you as well a worse response could have been yeah i know that's number one yeah (laughs) hey kevin you're super talented yeah i know number two is thanks sorry what did you say your name was again yeah that would have been an awful response okay and three, if you were like in a joking mood, you could have said, she says, hey, Kevin, you're super talented. You said, thanks. Some would say I'm irreplaceable. And if she doesn't get the reference, you could be like, to the left, to the left. And then just like fade away in embarrassment. Just walk away. Yeah. So those would have been three more awkward responses. Yeah. And I like how, I like how just the last one is if I'm in a joking mood. The other two would have been like, Totally legit. Yeah. I guess that's why you're on Funny or Die and then I'm not on Funny or Die because I don't have a good sensibility. And I mean, that that is good. Should we put should we put that together? I mean, I could have I could have my people reach out to I have no pull at Funny or Die. I I I just was lucky enough to do a sketch, but we'll figure out a way to get you your own office. How did that happen, by the way? How'd you link up with those guys? I told the Beyonce story and they wrote a sketch. Yeah. No way. My agent at the time, I said that I was interested in, in doing like some whatever stuff in front of a camera. And I think somebody from Funny or Die had gone to a show and maybe heard like my banter or something. Because I have, um, I don't know if you know this, but I have a kind of a dry personality, dry sense of humor. I haven't noticed. You haven't picked mm-hmm. up on that? No. Anyway, so I so that was a thing, and and I went into their office one time, and within a month they said, "Hey, come back, we have a sketch for you." And Jason Flowers wrote all these songs, like the classic "Did a Little Baby Have a Nightmare?" and what was the coffee song? I like my coffee black, just like mine. Uh, didn't you say you said something about having a heart attack? Yeah, and yeah. a guy was like, "Right, oh, shit." Yeah, my heart is black, just like my coffee. Yeah, give yeah. me a heart attack, and yeah, bury me. Yeah. I thought that was great. Yeah, it was fun. It's a really cool office. I think it was funny how you you were nowhere in the scene beforehand and then you just kind of appeared. Because like a, a lot of times the cameras will be zoomed in so you kind of can't tell, but like you just physically weren't there because you could see the whole scene and then all of a sudden you just popped in. Yeah, quick cuts. It was a fun thing. There was there was one part where it was, a, it was the one where I pop up behind the couch and they had me do like an ad lib set 
So we did like 15 takes of me just making stuff up off off of the top of my head. And I think it was, I think I did pretty decent to be considering I was surrounded by comedy writers and and people who are seriously pursuing a career in comedy. Um, so that was fun. Because in college, I, I took a composition lesson with a teacher who I thought was a brilliant songwriter. And he is, but um, we didn't listen to a single piece of music the whole semester. We were talking about the similarities of stand-up and songwriting. And we would watch comedians like do their sets for the whole yeah. hour lesson. And then, you know, it, it, it all comes down to creating commentary on something where like nothing previously existed. Yeah, basics of acting or just acting or comedy in general is intimidating and improv it was what I meant to say. Improv is intimidating. I took a class, like a one-off class in college called Basics of Acting. And a lot of it was centered around improv. And it was the one of the scariest things to me because you would just have to go in front of people like not knowing anything that you're going to say. A lot of times the teacher didn't tell you the situation until right before. So it's not like you could com- you could prepare that night or something. And then you're just sitting next to someone. We used a bench a lot of times as like format of how the conversation was coming to be. You'd kind of just like sit down someone on a bench and she'd be like, all right, you have to be 50 cent, but you can't tell your 50 cent. She's going to talk to you. And based on the conversation, she has to figure it out. Like you have to just make it apparent that you're like the rapper 50 cent. So it's just like on the spot, you, you have to say things, but then you're also thinking at the same time. So it's like your your wheels are constantly turning and that just forces you to say shit. Yeah. I feel, I feel like improv and also just comedy actors in general have a have such like a wider understanding of getting into that space because especially with improv, like there's so much more on your plate. Like you don't have a, a script that you can run off of. You have to be honestly interacting with your co-stars and, and um, you know, figuring things out on the spot. It's like... It's as it's as close to with art imitating life. It's as close to art being life, I think, in acting as you can get, unless you're like Daniel Day Lewis or something. I don't think comedy gets enough love. It seems like it's extremely hard to be funny on a consistent basis. Like when you're trying to be funny, for me at least, most of those times, I'm not. And then the few times that you hit makes you feel like you're funny. So then like you tell yourself like, oh, I'm pretty funny. But in reality, you're not that funny. But then comedians who learn the art of actually doing it consistently don't get recognized for it. Because I feel like it's such a, especially stand-up, it's such like a common man thing. They kind of present themselves like the everyman guy and they go up there. So it makes you feel like you can do it until you actually do it. And you feel like, and then you realize how fucking hard it is. It's crazy. Yeah, I would love to study it more and and actually my manager got me um some books for christmas that i've been reading so maybe one day i'll be i feel like you would do well in a stand-up environment i watch a lot of stand-up i like comedians but it's all about speed like quickness i i think like commentary is is wit so you get better at it like you just need to keep using your eyes what does it feel like when you're in the flow state of songwriting if you could think back to a recent time, it could be on Hoax, your most recent album. It could be any song you've ever written, released or not. 
what does it feel like when you're in the absolute flow state of songwriting? Everything's coming together. You're kind of like in that unconscious zone, not even thinking. And yeah, just like what, what's going on in your mind, your body, sensations, things like that. There's moments where you can write a song in 10 minutes and it's like the best song you've ever written. And that doesn't happen as often to me as the sort of typical like sitting at, you know, at a keyboard and hammering something out and building it, you know, over the course of a few hours or whatever. Every once in a while, everything that you need to say is lined up. And those tend to be the songs that, that hit the hardest too, I think, because there's no second guessing anything. And by the time like you're finished writing it, if it is like in 10 minutes, you're for whatever reason, like exhausted at the end. So it's just like a concentrated burst of energy. Yeah, I guess so. A couple songs on the record that were like that. And yeah, I don't know. I haven't played all of them live, especially like in this body of work. Um, that'll be for the tour later this this spring. But there's definitely some songs that, that I'm like nervous about because of uh, what I have to like kind of tap into again. But um, I think, uh, yeah, that, that kind of moment where you feel sort of almost like you're not writing, like it's it's doing itself for you it's right like the song's writing itself for you and you just happen to be holding the pen is um everybody i think chases that and then when it happens it's kind of like this is why i'm gonna write 200 shitty songs so i can get back to this one song every blue moon do you have any sort of mental processes or routines that have helped facilitate that state that so many people chase or anything that's helped you revisit it more often. If I can make a guess about when that would happen the most frequently, it would probably be at the juncture of like extreme sadness and like trying to confront it like head on because that's just what I've been writing about. But there are some sessions where I'm with, you know, another writer or another producer and, and for instance, like the song, Do You Remember, which is on Rudimental's latest album. We wrote that in 15 minutes at a, at a session in, in New York. And, um, I don't even know what it was like sometimes a rhyme, sometimes, you know, a, a phrase is so inspiring to me that, that like the rest kind of just fills in the space. But yeah, the songs that, the songs that, that put you in that zone are, are almost, I would say 100% of the time, the most special ones. That's interesting because when you were in the songwriting session with rudimentals, I would think that when you're with other people, it would make things harder to flow right off the bat or maybe like breaking down those walls at first rather than by yourself is that does it not make a difference or yeah i mean every session that i've done with with somebody is always there's been that like boilerplate moment of time where it's like oh hey i'm this guy hey you're those guys what's up rudimental they're all um equally gifted you know musicians and and uh producers and and they all were kind of in their own sections, like doing their own thing. And, and I basically just sat down listening to the track that was getting made and had the whole thing typed out on my phone. I tapped a mirror on the shoulder and said, let's, let's track it. And then we were in and out. It was actually kind of, well, what do we do with the rest of this six hour session that we booked? Cause we were done in 30 minutes. And uh, yeah, and like sometimes there are sessions where you end up talking to the person the whole time, the other person you're collaborating with or whoever, and you don't get anything done. And I used to think more often than not that, you know, it was just a waste of time. But 
for me now, like my outlook on it is, well, this was going to happen no matter what. So the next time we get together, if we do, it's going to be a much more organic, like writing experience. I don't have a very long list of of people that, that I like writing with regularly, that is. I'll give, I'll go up to any session really to, to kind of experiment with new things. And I like letting other people lead, but, um, in terms of at the moment, at least in terms of people I, I want to work with for my own stuff, it's, um, respectfully, uh, selective few. I think the way you write about sadness, and I don't know if it, if it's something that you consciously do in your creative process or songwriting process. But I think the way that you write about sadness is fascinating because it seems like it's so dripping with emotion, but it's objective at the same time. Like it seems like you're observing sadness very nonpartisan. Like you're not taking sides. It's just like, this is what happened and these are the feelings involved and this is how it ended up. And it's not, it doesn't seem like you are overcome with the actual emotion while writing the song and you may be this is just my interpretation but it seems like it's emotions that you have been through that are very strong and then you take some time away or just kind of let things happen and then maybe see it more clearly after the fact a month or two after the fact is that something that you consciously try to do in your songwriting process to kind of remove yourself emotionally from that situation or I guess no, remove yourself emotionally is the the wrong phrase. I guess maybe just put space between you and the experience before you write about it. Or do you find yourself writing about things in the moment? Yeah, I don't typically write when something happens because I'm I'm in it at that point. It's kind of hard to deal with anything else. And then when you can sort of um, articulate whatever sort of feeling that you were going through in that in that time, it's easier for me to sort of get around that. The goal for me isn't songwriting. It's not to tell people a specific story. It's to try and um, confront or make relatable a uh, a type of feeling that I think is kind of universal because everybody has feelings. And I think that the reason that, that I write the songs is to express myself personally. But the reason that I release the songs is is to have people, you know, hopefully connect with them in their own ways. And, and for whatever reason, I have a much easier time or I, I feel better about a song if, if it's not all about Kevin and it's more, well, here's something that exists. And, and this, is, this is kind of my hypothesis about how to get through it. Then the listener can have their own interpretation of that. Like it kind of just putting out these moments and then however you react to them is how you react to that. Yeah, because if I, if I got, there's some songs on the new album that are, that are very specific. And if I got any more specific than that, I would be crossing lines that I very like adamantly don't cross. It's just like, there's only like so much to share before it becomes consistently painful and also like inaccurate for other people. I mean, everybody likes, likes watching people. That's like a whole, that's why social media is so popular, right? But I feel like from a, or people like knowing that people are watching them too. I feel oh like a yeah, lot of it. yeah. I mean, that's just attention at that yeah. point. But for whatever reason, people like reality TV, like that's really all social media is. And it's everybody's reality TV. Everyone has a show on Instagram. Everyone, you know, has, has like some viral tweet and pictures of like what they, what they did that day. 
but for with so, with the songs that I'm putting out, it, it's less about just that specific story and more about like, okay, well, this happened to me, and this is how I'm tackling this. And I've been lucky so far. A, a lot of people have, have talked to me at shows or online saying that you know they really connect with some of the songs or they've gotten them through certain times and things. And that's why we put music out. It's not to um, puff my chest out and like and, and you know say I'm I'm this like I'm you know. And I don't like bragging, so I'd rather have people listen to the songs and connect in their own way. Yeah, that's what what I think is so fascinating about songwriting is that, like you were saying, you can input your experience into a certain song without getting into too much detail, and then someone else will be able to insert themselves into that experience or a similar experience that you wrote about. So it's like you have this puzzle piece, which is the song. And then someone else can lock into that. But it's not just one other person. It's hundreds or thousands or millions of other people that kind of are like holding that experience that fits in with it. So it's, it's crazy how the, a phrase or a melody or just the combination of a bunch of elements put into song form can strike such a chord with people. You're about to go on tour for Hoax. And I was reading about a couple pranks that happened on tour when you were with Skylar Gray and the ex-ambassadors. And so one of those was that Skylar Gray flashed the ex-ambassadors while they were on stage, but like to them, not to the stage, and to keep it uh, you know, appropriate at all age levels. And then the ex-ambassadors put a bunch of dick-shaped paraphernalia on the stage and then you launch them into the stage. Do you have any sort of pranks in the back of your mind that you are planning to play on this tour if the person is not in the room? Because obviously you can't tell them if they're here, but are you keeping anything in in your back pocket or have any pranks since then happened recently that come to mind uh maybe like while we're on the road we'll, we'll come up with something but the the supports are are really nice people it's quinn lewis and, and a, a girl named mink and um they're doing half half and half of the dates and um i'm more uh excited about befriending them than uh and embarrassing them and with that being said maybe the embarrassment will lead to they're gonna probably friendship. try and embarrass me because I'm such like a pushover about that stuff. So they'll, they'll immediately like seize control when the tour starts. Like, yeah, I can do whatever I want to this guy. But, um, but that's your best asset though, because they're not expecting it. So then you can, you can take like two or three pranks to suffer the pain in the short term, but then you can have this long-term vision of just like an insanely masterminded prank that'll just come out of nowhere. I mean, if you have a list of pranks... I can suggest. Don't I can say suggest them. Don't say them on air. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. But afterwards, yeah. I I have some things that come to mind. I'll go into my prank Google document after we finish recording. So I was going through a bunch of your YouTube videos to prepare for this interview, and I saw a bunch of comments that were very nice, and you write about a lot of sad things that happen and there's a lot of sadness in the way your songwriting process. So I thought it would be cool to kind of share with you some comments that I came across. So 
One of them by T-Swizzle6 says that Kevin is one of those artists that I so desperately wish was more famous and more recognized for all of his talent. But in a way, I'm happy because he's not as famous because he's my little musical secret. That was the first one. I, I see those a lot where like, it's either that I'm underrated or they want to keep me to themselves. And I'm like, well, that's very thoughtful, but I want to pay my rent. Being kept in their pocket isn't good for monetary purposes. You gotta. It is nice though that, that like, you know, after taking a year to record this record, putting music out again and, and having people still be on board and continue to share it with their friends and, and keep growing this thing. The other ones were, I find Kevin really attractive, LOL. I've never had sex, but I think I know what it feels like now. And it's been a really tough couple of weeks. I needed this eargasm to slow down and relax. How are we doing on time, by the way? We are. Just a, I think the meter ran out on the car, so I don't want to get a ticket. Okay. Yeah. But it's the same car that I drove with all the shirts. Yeah. Okay. Um, so We can fix it in post. It's okay. Yeah. We could, we, there's a lot more awkward things that have been left in. So uh, the, it's the podcast. comment about the eargasm. Yeah. So um, they said it's been a really rough, tough, really tough couple of weeks. I need this eargasm to slow down and relax. So you are actually bringing people so much satisfaction that they're having orgasms of the ears and it's helping them relax. You know what I say to that? At least someone's doing it, you know? Yeah. Or <laughs> at least someone's having it do it to them. That's a... Uh, uh, not to go back to OTPHJs. I guess I would have what somebody would define as an eargasm when, when you listen to something that like lands on the right chord and you get like the chills. That happened when we were making the record every once in a while, like when you hear a new part go into a song and, and it's like, whoa, this is cool. Yeah, that, I feel like that happens. Uh, that happens a lot to me. And then, when I, especially when I'm listening to music, if I'm the only one that's in the apartment so I can kind of just like move around or do things that would be too embarrassing to do in front of other people. Cause I feel like whenever I hear music that strikes that chord, I want to be able to like move around or do something on now. So I'll just be like walking around my apartment, bopping my head or like doing some dumb twirl or, or something. But yeah, definitely uh, been through the orgasm experience before. What negative experience or something that you wish to not repeat has changed you for the better? Stay away from like the business side of things because I could say a whole lot about that. But um, I think personally, just through my whole palette of experiences, just like hopefully anybody else as they mature, my perspective on things has, has been slowly refining itself over time. And, and I think each thing that happens is a, a new opportunity to kind of address it more appropriately than the last one and more like beyond like relationships or, or anything like that. It, it's like things happen every day to everybody and it's important to, I want to be young forever, but I want to be an adult at the same time. So I think, you know, over the course of, especially since I've been putting music out, things I've learned on tour and working with, with you know, other musicians and other people and, and being responsible for other people when you're on the road, it's just taught me a lot you know, in my growth so far. I don't think I can pinpoint a specific thing, positive or negative, that's given me anything beyond like a chip on my shoulder. But everything sort of falls into place for some kind of reason. And uh, I guess the the one thing I've learned is that like a majority of of communication is is reactions. 
I feel like a lot of, you know, outside of like simple conversations like this, where we're just doing questions and answers and, and, you know, occasional quips, the real like discussions that you have that, that impact like your growth and impact your life are, are based almost exclusively on reacting to one another um, or whoever's involved. And uh, it's important to be aware of that because words can be a very uh, harmful weapon. And, uh, and I think that that's probably something that I've, I've learned is, is to certainly not weaponize things that I say. And, and that kind of goes back to the thing I was talking about, how my songs are, are more about contemplating or considering feelings rather than going after something. Maybe that time will come at some point, but right now it's, it's, I'm really focused on trying to create something as universal as I can and something that will last for a while, not trying to chase anything as fleeting as what we hear when we get in the car every day. The last question I had as we wrap up, that's something that I usually ask everyone that comes on here, is if you had access to a global broadcast for five seconds. So basically, if you were appearing in people's headphones or if someone was watching a YouTube video, your face would pop up for five seconds and you'd have access globally to give people a message. What would you want to say? I'm not even kidding. What would literally happen would be the clock would start and I would say, oh, are we rolling? And then the five seconds would be up just as I'm about to say something. That's fine. That, yeah. That's, that's just how my luck works. But if I if if they gave me an extra five seconds because would, of my yeah, what would mistake. Be, what would be... So if they knew this beforehand and then they told you falsely that, okay, it's rolling, but it really wasn't. And then you had five seconds to do that and then the five seconds was actually playing what would happen in the second five seconds see this is what would be happening it would be, it'd be thinking if i if if i knew is this uh, like a surprise like it just pops up or like i'm going like i'm coming you here because i could know prepare. it's happening yeah you, you can know it's happening i probably I'd, I'd probably say less about me or my music and and more some some kind of like non what's the what's the adjective version of platitude is it platitudinal I don't know. Some non-platitudinal we, phrase that, that, we'll that, that, can, up, that can resonate with people. Or I would just say, go get tickets for the hoax tour this spring. Go get tickets for the hoax tour this spring. Yeah. That's a good place to end off. Sick. Well, I just want to say thank you again for taking the time to do this because I know you are a busy guy and you have a lot of things on your schedule coming up with tours. So thanks again for taking the time to sit down. Thank I really you do appreciate it. That means a lot. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode with Kevin Garrett. Please go stream his latest album, Hoax, right now on Spotify, Apple Music, and wherever else you can find songs. You may want to delete your ex's number before pressing play. Or don't. Kevin is currently touring the U.S. through the end of May, and you can catch him at a city near you with the links in the description of this podcast or by going to kevingarrettmusic.com. And if you love this podcast, we would love if you could rate, subscribe, and leave a comment on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to this. And maybe even tell a friend too. This helps us get more hard-to-reach listeners and do bigger and better things, which means that we can keep bringing the best conversations to you. And we love what we do. Until next time. You're really not going to let me in? I don't have anything
still myself It must not feel right that you're with someone else And you hide it well But don't think I couldn't tell It's not the same can't explain why I'm the only one who feels ashamed Hold on just for now You got this whole thing turned around And I wanna throw us against the wall I won't take a fall if I act You've done for way too long And in a voice so soft Whisper, you know I know Before you're gone Hold on just for now You've got this whole This whole thing turned 